Welcome to See, Hear, Speak podcast, episode 36. I'm happy to report that I've finished active treatment for breast cancer and I'm cancer-free. What a relief. I'll be taking the next few months to recover from this crazy year of treatment. But in the meantime, I'm grateful to guest hosts for keeping that content coming to you. In this episode, guest host Kelly Farquharson returns. She talks with Dr. Katie Cabbage and Dr. Sherry Deveni about treatment for pediatric speech sound disorders. Specifically, they discuss the importance of understanding what treatment approaches to use with various profiles, the most misunderstood treatment approaches, and advice for practicing clinicians just starting to learn more about treatment for speech sound disorders. I'm thankful to Kelly, Katie, and Sherry for taking the time to share with See, Hear, Speak listeners. Speaking of listeners, thank you for listening. And don't forget to check out our website, www.seehearspeakpodcast.com to sign up for email alerts for new episodes and content, read a transcript, access articles and resources that we discussed, and find more information about our guests. And if you like this podcast, don't forget to subscribe and leave a, leave a positive rating in the Apple's podcast or wherever you are listening. This really helps to draw uh, more listeners to the podcast as they see those reviews. So thank you so much. Welcome to today's episode of See, Hear, Speak podcast. My name is Kelly Farquharson and I am your guest host today. Today we're going to be talking about treatment for speech sound disorders with two of my very favorite people and very favorite researchers, Dr. Sherry Deveni and Dr. Katie Cabbage. So would each of you please introduce yourselves? Uh, yeah, so I can go first. Um, so I'm Katie Cabbage, and I am currently at Brigham Young University in beautiful Provo, Utah, and I'm an assistant professor there. I just finished my fourth year and on faculty at BYU. Um, I um, study um, the intersection between speech sound disorders and literacy. That's kind of my interest area. And so I do have a research lab called the Cab Lab um, yes. at <laughs> BYU. Um, and I work with a lot of undergraduate researchers. That's kind of the focus at BYU. And everything we do in my lab is somehow related to speech sound disorders, how those kids do or do not um, have success learning to read, you know, what's going on underneath the hood, like how are these kids processing speech sounds, how are they thinking about speech sounds, and how do we ultimately get better at helping them produce speech sounds correctly. Awesome, thank you. Okay, and I'm Sherry Deveni, and I'm an associate professor at the University of Nebraska at Omaha in special education and communication disorders. And um, I do want to say thank you so much for having us. I'm so excited oh, yeah. to talk about speech sound disorders with both of you. I know it's one of our favorite topics. Um, so I'm really looking forward to sharing information with the See, Hear, Speak listeners as well. Uh, so I do want to mention that before I finished my doctorate work in speech language pathology, I was a, um, a practicing clinician for about 10 years, uh, working mainly in early childhood and K-12 educational settings. So, and I think, you know, we've all kind of had that uh, mm -hmm. clinical experience. And I think that's, that was really important. I think it's really framed my lens, um, especially as, a, as an educator and a researcher now. Um, so right now I teach coursework on a variety of different topics, uh, but including pediatric speech sound disorders, 
language disorders, and language learning disorders like dyslexia. And my research focus does include speech sound disorders, particularly in young pediatric populations. Uh, it's no secret, I'm a big fan of early intervention. Uh, it's really a passion of mine. And I think um, the SLP's work with young children is truly valuable. And I wanna do what I can as an educator, as a researcher to really champion that work and be a part of the development of professional evidence base and its dissemination to support really high quality service provision for young children who could benefit from our help. So my lab at UNO is the Toddler Communication Lab. And as I said, I'm really happy to be here. So thank you, Kelly and Tiffany for having us. That's awesome. That's so great. Thank you both for that introduction. And I think a, a fun fact about us, in addition to thank you for talking about our clinical experience, I think that's an important thing to call out for any researcher because it really does help to shape the direction that we take sometimes in our research. So we were all practicing SLPs before we went back for our PhDs. And we all did our PhDs at the same time at the University of Nebraska in Lincoln. We so that's did. how we met. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so we were the, the a doc student group together with a, a, a cadre of other wonderful people, but um, it's very exciting to now be uh, pretty far out on the other side of that, I guess. <laughs> yes. That's the great part. We're done. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> no, it was a great experience. So a lot, a lot of good came out of that for sure. Yeah, and I'm really glad, Sherry, that you mentioned the clinical background because I think to your point that so I'm a former school-based SLP and mm -hmm. yeah the, like I think of those kids all the time uh -huh. in this work that we currently do and I think that that has really shaped the direction that my research has gone because of those kids that I worked with in the schools. Well I think one reason that I was I had you two in mind to talk to in addition to just loving talking to the two of you mm -hmm. um kind of comes from that exact idea of the ways in which your clinical experience has shaped the direction that your research has taken. And one thing in particular that has been um, of interest to me that you guys have collaborated on together is your kind of this um, series of presentations that you've done at ASHA now, um, at the ASHA convention every year about selecting the right treatment approach for speech sound disorders. And in the, the times that I've gotten to go to that presentation, it is standing room only. And you two have filled very, very large ballrooms with people mm -hmm. who are really interested in this idea of which treatment approach do we select? Um, how do we apply it? How do we know we're doing the right one? <laughs> and, mm -hmm. and monitoring that progress along the way. So I'm super curious of how you started that idea and how you got to the point of filling you know, large ballrooms of people, of clinicians wanting to hear from you. So how did that start? Well, clearly we feel ballrooms because of our just you know, <laughs> magnanimous personalities. Yes, it's, no our, it's our dynamic presentation <laughs> style more than anything. No, um, Well, honestly, a few years ago, uh, Katie and I were both talking about the kinds of questions that we'd been fielding from practicing clinicians and from former students about speech sound disorder treatment. And, you know, as we mentioned, we both teach coursework in speech sound disorder uh, for students who obviously, you know, haven't started their careers yet. Uh, but we realized, you know, a lot of folks have had basic coursework in speech sound disorder as part of their initial training for the profession, were out working, and now, you know, had some questions about what else they could be doing. So, some were kind of looking for a deeper understanding of why we do what we do. Some had students on their caseload that maybe they weren't feeling, you know, particularly confident about treating for a variety of reasons. Um, 
And I, I think it kind of boils down to education in our profession is really, um, it's all about bi-directional learning. So often we go kind of in one direction where we start teaching a subject academically first and then applying it to clinical practice. But the learning process can also work the other way too, right? So uh, we encounter things in clinical practice that lead to questions and give us motivation for continued learning. So Katie and I really got to talking and thought about how great it would be to address these questions more systematically for clinicians yeah. in the field. Um, so it's kind of like in class when one student asks a question, uh, chances are that other people are wondering the same thing and can really benefit from hearing those answers. So we decided to put together um, a proposal for a talk at ASHA when it was in LA in 2017 on intervention mm -hmm. decisions for children with speech sound disorder. And that was pretty well received. And then we were invited to speak at ASHA in Boston the next year about, about target selection. And then that talk also was pretty well attended. And so we had the opportunity to kind of expand on these topics for a short course presentation then in ASHA in 2019. And also since then, um, we have graciously had some opportunities to write about updated research findings and evidence that informs clinical practice for pediatric speech sound disorder treatment. And we're happy to share those links um, to those papers in the notes section, in the notes section for the podcast. Um, I also just want to say, I think it's been really fun. Is that a word we can use to describe this collaboration, Katie? Um, but oh, it's been I really would fun. use that word for sure. <laughs> Uh, to lean into our roles um, yeah. in higher education as researchers and share the information that we've come across and dug into with practicing clinicians. So we both have really spent a lot of time, you know, combing through research and reading up on expert opinions related to speech sound disorder treatment. And that was time, you know, that we didn't have as practicing <laughs> clinicians for those kind of tasks. Mm -hmm. um, and so it hopefully, you know, being able to kind of pull that together and share those uh, with people that can really be beneficial um, and help them more effectively approach their work. And that's really, I think, what drives us. Yeah, I would I would totally agree. And I think it's been really fun as we've continued to do this, the 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 opportunity to interact so directly with so many clinicians from all over the country and you know get their feedback. Like, you know, this is these are the things I'm trying. And, you know, and we it's it's just developed this lovely conversation around speech sound disorder intervention. I think both Sherry and I have just this real passion for helping SLPs be confident in the decisions that they're mm -hmm. making. I love that so much. And the, the presentations have just been absolutely fantastic. And I um, am going to, in addition to the articles that you guys have written on this topic, which are excellent, I'm also going to um, get a copy of a handout from that, ASHA, that first ASHA presentation that we can share with the listeners as well. So we'll post a PDF of that on the website as well. So thank you for, for offering to share that. So then a question I have, um, related to this idea of all the digging you've been doing, right? So you've been, I love the, that you're thinking about this from a perspective of leaning into that opportunity and really um, just reading in depth um, and breadth across different therapy approaches and treatment approaches. So across your research and across your readings and now you're thinking and you're presenting, have you landed on a present or a, an approach that is your favorite? So do you have a favorite treatment approach? 
Oh goodness, that that is a loaded question for me because <laughs> you know there are lots of approaches out there, and I you know it's one thing that I'm constantly teaching my students is you know there are so many approaches out there, and there are so many kids out there, and you know my favorite approach is the approach that's the right approach for that kid, mm. um, you know, and I think that's one of the things that's been so fun as I've learned and really dug into all these different approaches. Like I think you know, and and Cher, you can and Kelly, you also can can add to what you think but I think that every approach has merit like and you know when matched to the right kid it it is exactly the right approach for that kid so I know that's kind of a cop-out answer no it's not I love that (laughs) but but if pressed I think that the the approach that that has really changed my paradigm clinically and this actually um it that has to do with you know the targets that you're choosing to work on in therapy and um I remember back in 2007, I went to my very first ASHA and I went to a short course on complexity that Judy Garrett talked um, at. And that was this kind of watershed moment for me clinically um, when learning this idea that what if we chose targets that were kind of above where kid was at developmentally um, and that was such an intriguing idea to me and so and I and as I've dug more into complexity and used it clinically um, importantly it is not the right approach for every kid but I think for for the kid that complexity which you know we talk about in some of the papers that we've written this idea that if you choose complex targets to work on that the rationale behind that is if you have a kid who's missing a lot of phonemes and you choose a complex target you as your that child is acquiring that target they acquire other targets that are less complex and like that that idea was paradigm shifting for me because it it really it, it taught me to think about, you know, what's my goal here with this kid? Am I trying to get one sound at a time? You know, is there a way to get more than one sound? So I think that for me, that was a very, it's hard to say that's my favorite approach because it's not the right approach for every kid, but like for the kid that it is the right approach for, it's an awesome idea. Yes. I love that. And I first learned about the complexity approach. Um, My phonology professor in graduate school was Adele Michio, who has since Mm -hmm. passed away. She died Mm -hmm. in 2009, Mm -hmm. Um, but she was a student of Judy Garrett's. And so she talked a lot about the complexity approach. So yeah, I I love that approach too. Yeah. Well, can I, I was going to say, what's funny about that after that ASHA, like, I remember like flying home on the plane, I'm like, oh my goodness, all my kids, we're going to start targeting complex (laughs) targets. And, you know, and that lasted about two days. I'm like, wait a minute. But, you know, there was, you know, one kid in particular in that, that group, Austin, I always remember Austin for him. I had just been, you know, working with him and working with him and we were making no progress. And for him, like he suddenly just made tons of progress. And for him, it was the right approach. So. Well, I just wanted to say too, (laughs) I, I love hearing you talk about the complexity approach, Katie. And I remember there was one time we were presenting together. I think we were at the state convention in Nebraska a couple of years ago, and you were presenting on your section. I remember I'm up there copiously taking notes because I think, I think it's a, it's a really intriguing approach, but I think it, it does take, you almost need like repeated exposures to it before you can really kind of wrap your mind around and think like, how would this work clinically um, for students? But I think you do a really great job of explaining it. So I think this you can so really talk about, yeah, yeah. I, you can tell you can really like your passion really comes through, but, um, but it really has helped me have a, have a deeper understanding of that approach too. just in, just in our conversations and listening to you. 
sure. um, share about it. So uh, for me, uh, I'm going to interpret the word favorite pretty liberally. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Uh, because the approach that I want to talk about isn't necessarily my most love, loved approach, but it's certainly ubiquitous to our field. And, and I think that there are some misunderstandings about it um, that I also wanted to kind of, I just want to use this as a platform to talk about it a little bit. Um, so the approach that, that I'm going to talk about, it's one of our oldest speech sound disorder intervention approaches on record. It's still used very frequently in clinical practice uh, with both pediatric and adult populations. Um, and as I mentioned, it, it's very ubiquitous to our field. It's just, it's out there. People are using it all the time. And that approach is, drum roll. No, just <laughs> kidding. Uh, the traditional... <laughs> <laughs> the traditional articulation therapy approach, uh, which I think should otherwise be known as the vanilla ice cream approach of speech sound disorder <laughs> intervention. I, it really just seems like it's everybody's default choice. You know, when nothing else sounds good, <laughs> let's go with that right. one. Um, and it's certainly been around for a long time. I'm, I mean, I believe it was even introduced, introduced back in the late 30s. Yeah, it's used right. by a lot of SLPs today to remediate speech sound disorders all the way from preschoolers through adults. Um, in fact, in 2013, Brombaugh and Smith, they surveyed hundreds of SLPs working with preschoolers and found that over 80% of those SLPs surveyed use this approach either always or sometimes with their preschool population. Wow. So uh, there's obviously a lot of strengths and unique features to it, and that's why people are drawn to it. It's got this logical sequential progression. We really like that as SLPs. Um, the air sounds are treated individually, so one after the other. So we have this kind of vertical attack strategy that works really great with clients of all ages who have a limited number of errors that are articulatory based. Mm -hmm. um, that it has this emphasis on practice and repetition and it's adaptable, it's flexible. So a lot of people love it. Um, but I wish <laughs> that people knew a couple, a little bit more about it. And I think there's a lot of nuances to it that kind of get glossed over. Yeah. Um, so I'm gonna share four things. Oh, okay. <laughs> I know. So, so put your seatbelts on. Here we go. Um, so the first, the first thing that I wish people understood a little bit better about the traditional articulation therapy approach is that, you know, there are some general guidelines to it and how to implement the approach, but there's very little in terms of concrete standardized details. So a lot of folks are probably implementing kind of a, a variety of sort of variations of this approach. Uh, so there's kind of a lack of consistency in how it's applied clinically. Right. Um, we don't, there, you know, as I mentioned, there aren't a lot of standardized pieces to it. So like the reinforcement schedule, even the criteria that we may set for mastery, data collection guidelines, all of that is um, pretty loose, <laughs> loosely defined. Um, and so that's the first thing I wanted to mention. The second thing is it's been around for a long time um, and it's really stood the test of time. Even KMI pointed out back in 2006 uh, that, that this approach has been studied a lot, but it, what we don't know is it hasn't really been studied a lot in comparison to other treatment approaches. So we know it works, but what, we, what the verdict is still kind of out on is we don't know how well it works compared to another approach. So there's still a, a pretty big um, expanse out there that we could uh, delve into on this approach. 
Thirdly, um, I did want to mention that what what we're implementing today uh, does kind of get away a little bit from the original version of this treatment approach. So um, Van Riper, when he first introduced it, he had a, a much bigger uh, emphasis on the auditory perceptual side mm -hmm. of the intervention. Right. And in you know today's clinical practice, we're really kind of primarily focus on the production piece. He also really limited um, his use of imitation for elicited productions to just kind of uh, the level of isolation and its syllables. And we're using imitation to really introduce a lot of different, uh, to introduce target words at different higher levels of um, linguistic complexity. So I don't know which is right. <laughs> you know, we still, we still need some research on it, but um, there certainly are differences there that I do think we need to explore so we can yeah. figure out, you know, what should we be doing that's gonna give us more bang for our buck clinically. Yeah. And then finally, this is my last point. Um, I think this approach probably should be used a little bit more sparingly in clinical practice than it currently is. Um, it's really not a one size fits all treatment approach. And even though it's really popular, it's not appropriate for all clients, particularly clients who have multiple errors and really compromised intelligibility. Mm -hmm. So, uh, so it's honestly not that great for preschoolers, uh, particularly those that have uh, phonologically based errors. So yeah, I always thought that yeah. was interesting in that, that um, survey study that you referenced that, you know, it's 80% of preschool based yeah. SLPs. And, you know, when we think about preschoolers with speech sound, with speech sound disorders, like generally those are your highly unintelligible kids, those kids who are having multiple phonological processes. If we know they have a speech sound disorder at preschool age, it's usually pretty severe. And so, so I think you're making a really good point um, that, you know, thinking about what, what is the right approach for those kids, yeah. and, you know, and I think you're right that that may not be um, the, the traditional articulation approach may not be the right approach at that, that age. Yeah, absolutely. And Jonathan Preston and Megan Lease, they wrote a really comprehensive and informative chapter about articulation interventions kind of more broadly mm -hmm. in Lynn Williams and her colleagues' second edition of their Interventions for Speech Sound Disorders and Children's text. And they did a great job of really kind of splitting up the components and kind of breaking down what works and what are some major drawbacks. And one of the things they noted, a term they used uh, was that often this approach is inappropriately overapplied in clinical yeah. practice. Yeah. So I really couldn't agree more. So, so that's why I wanted to sh share some thoughts on this mm -hmm. one. I'll get off my yeah. soapbox. No, I love that. Yeah. I, I actually really appreciate your liberal, you, your liberal adaptation of, yeah. of the favorite there, because I think those are some really great points. Mm -hmm. And, and that book you mentioned, we'll, we'll link that book in the, in the notes mm -hmm. for this episode as well. Um, I think you make some really great points about really some considerations to take. I think some of those could actually really be applied across treatment approaches, the points you're making, because it's the case oh, that yeah. some of them are widely applied inappropriately, you know, and I think, I think that's a really important point to, to keep in mind. Can I share my favorite? Please, yes, absolutely. Okay. Good. okay. So my favorite treatment <laughs> approach, although I do now feel, thank you, Katie, that I'm going to couch it in. <laughs> it has to be the right one for the right, for the child. <laughs> right, um, right. But multiple oppositions is my jam. I yeah. love that approach so much. I think it is. So for me, and I'll use your terminology again, Katie, is it was a watershed moment for me learning yeah. about multiple mm -hmm. oppositions. Mm -hmm. I didn't learn about it until after I had graduated from my master's program at Penn mm -hmm. State. And I was at 
a professional development. It was probably 2006. It might've even been 2007 that we had these shared watershed moments, Katie. Oh my um, goodness. I know. And it wasn't at Ash. It was at a state, um, a, okay. a state professional development when I was in Pennsylvania and Lynn Williams was presenting and it was about multiple oppositions. And I was just enthralled by the idea that, you know, it really kind of extends this idea of a phonological pattern or, or phonological process, um, it kind of extends the idea to think about each individual child using those, these idiosyncratic patterns. And when it seems like there's not a pattern there, there actually really is. It's just not something that fits neatly into the package of like fronting or stopping or backing. It's this Mm -hmm. really linguistically based and unique to the child pattern, and we can treat it accordingly. And that just, that really blew my world open. And I, um, that's when I first met Lynn Williams. And after that, invited her to come to our state convention again and present when I got involved in the, in the state association there. And she and I have become, have been friends ever since, because I just was so kind of obsessed with this approach and learning more about it and applying yeah. it and in a non-stalkerish way became <laughs> uh, friends with Lynn Williams. Yeah. And so to learn a little bit more about multiple oppositions, you can listen to episode 34 of this same podcast, See Here Speak podcast, because I got the opportunity to interview Lynn and we talked all about it. So I'll kind of let that go here, but that is my favorite approach. I just love thinking about it and love the, the structure of it and, and how we can apply it. Yeah. And so I think both of you um, raised some really interesting points as you're talking about your favorite approaches. And it made me wonder kind of, what do you think, is the, now that you've kind of thought about these approaches, you've talked to a lot of clinicians about these approaches and you've mm-hmm. presented a lot. What do you think is really the most misunderstood about treating speech sound disorders? Yeah, mm-hmm. I, I feel like here, uh, I have a soapbox that I'm about to get on. And Yay, you can borrow <laughs> mine, there you go. <laughs> you, know, you know, it's interesting. That I, I, I feel like sometimes in our field that, you know, when we think about kids with speech sound disorders, you know, we have terms like, well, that kid is just our tick or, you know, that, that somehow, somehow this communication disorder is, you know, a simple communication disorder. And I don't, I don't want to rank communication disorders, you know, and impact on quality of life. And, you know, but I think that one of, for, for me, as I've talked with clinicians and in my own experience, one of the most misunderstood things about speech sound disorders um, treatment is that it's easy um, to, to correct speech sound errors, you know, and I think, you know, we've all had the kid who made pretty fast progress and that's awesome, but we also have all had that kid that, you know, has, is working on R for five years and you're still not making, you know, any headway with that. And so I think, you know, this, there's this misconception that, well, you know, that those are just the easy kids to treat. Um, And I think, you know, I, I, I think it's really important that we recognize that first of all this takes skill to to correct speech sound disorders uh, speech sound disorder errors um in in the schools you know i am a big advocate for we need to keep these kids on our caseload i know that's not always a very popular opinion but and the reason i i really stand by that is you know there's no one else in the school setting that knows as much about speech sounds as we do there and you know kids who have you know, language disorders or other learning disabilities, they need help from the SLP for sure, but there are also other professionals working with those kids. And the kids who have a speech sound disorder 
there there's no one else working on that speech sound disorder except for the SLP and so and you know and I think about you know the all the kids that I've worked with that you know for them correcting their speech sound errors had a massive impact on them um, I think of a kid that I worked with he was a high schooler and um he, I asked him, you know, what do you think about your speech? And at that point, he wasn't able to say R. He was still working on that. And he said, it doesn't bother me most of the time, except at a dance when I can't get a girl to understand what my name is. And his name had an R in it. And, you know, and I, I often think of that kid because I think, you know, for for a lot of people, he looked like a just our tick kid. You know, he all he's, he's just not saying R all the time. But for him, like that was important. And that, you know, that is impacting his quality of life. You know, I and I and I really I I hold that, you know, disclosure that he had with, you know, safe confidence because like he, that was a very vulnerable moment for him to explain like this is why I got to learn how to say R and you know I just think so th I, that's one of my my I think that things that's most misunderstood about kids with speech sound disorders that they are easy to treat and you know I think that you know if you know I would argue that the more we understand about different approaches the more tools we have you know they get easier to treat for sure, but that requires education on our part as clinicians to make sure um, that we are providing the best intervention for the right kid. And so I, I, I think that this, I, I hope, I would love to, to start a revolution that we don't think of these kids as just our tick, that we think of these kids as whole, you know, whole human beings who, who want to be able to communicate clearly and, you know, and in a way that where other people can understand them and respect them for who they are, so. Is okay. there room on that soapbox for two? Yes, come on up, come on up. You bet. <laughs> Because, oh my gosh, do I agree. I think anybody who has had this, had the misfortune of having this conversation with me knows how much I hate the phrase, just our tick. I think it's so belittling yeah. and I think it's yeah. um, belittling to the SLPs because as you're saying, it's so hard to treat these kids yeah. and belittling to the kids. Like that's, mm -hmm. you know, it's not our job to your, rank order. Your problem isn't very serious. Yeah, you know, right, like right. yeah, 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 exactly. I love yeah. that. What about you, yeah. Sherry? What do you think is the most misunderstood <laughs> aspect of treating speech sound disorders? Well, actually, <laughs> scoot over, guys, because I want to get <laughs> <laughs> on the Just Our Take uh, soapbox also. Um, <laughs> room for three, party of three. Um, but I, I also wanted to mention, Katie and I have had conversations about this too, but I think something that gets sort of lost in the discussion when you talk about Just Our Tick is mm -hmm. sort of the transitory nature of mm -hmm. communication disorders and how what a child's presenting with can kind of change over time. Yeah. And so I do think that that um, does kind of get lost in the shuffle and that, you know, a child maybe who, who now, you know, as a fifth grader looks like they're just our tick mm -hmm. and only working on really that, you know, that pesky <laughs> R <laughs> sound, but, you know, they may have a whole history of speech and language um, involvement. And, and so there may be some residual issues that they're still, you know, kind of dealing with. And I, I think we're really kind of doing a disservice when we don't think about our, our students kind of more holistically and thinking about, you know, the historical context too of their, um, what they're presenting with. So, yeah, absolutely. Uh, so the other piece that I wanted to talk about here is really just has uh, to do also with kind of this oversimplification of speech sound disorders. But I'll tell you, whenever I'm, uh, uh, beginning to teach my undergrad uh, speech sound disorder course, I always ask the students to kind of set goals for themselves. What do you really want to get out of our 
time together? What do you really want to understand? And almost like two a one, I shouldn't say that. There's, it's probably not 100%, but there's a lot of them that they really want to know what's the difference between articulatory based yeah. mm-hmm. and phonologically based. So we talk about it, we explain it, but the thing is, I don't want people to get, I don't want them to get so hung up on that, that it's like an either or. Uh, And I think we kind of do the same thing when we talk about intervention approaches, but I Mm -hmm. think what we have to just be mindful of is it's not always an either or choice. And that oftentimes, even a child who might be presenting with more of a phonologically based Mm -hmm. speech sound disorder could still benefit from some instruction on motor production and phonemic placement. And even a child who's presenting more with more of a motor based or articulatory based speech sound disorder could still benefit from some meaningful discussion about the linguistic aspects of speech sound production. And I think that a lot of our approaches too aren't either or, but they're really kind of on a continuum or on a dial and they all either have kind of more or less of this. So I think some of the nuances to speech sound disorder, just the nature of the disorder and um, the treatment approaches kind of gets, gets lost in the, in the broad strokes, I think. Oh, yeah, I totally agree with that. Like, I, I think that, you know, for a long time in our field, we've, we've wanted to kind of silo these kids. Like you are either, you know, have this articulation based area (laughs) where, you know, disorder or it's phonologically based. And, and of course, I, I I think it's much more of a continuum than we've really recognized. And, you know, I think about, you know, some of the work, you know, Kelly, that you've done looking at like those other underlying phonological processes so you know things and I don't mean like in speech sound speech sound errors but you know what other phonological skills are these kids struggling with you know what does phonological awareness look like what does literacy Mm -hmm. acquisition look like Mm -hmm. um and you know what does speech perception look like those are all kind of these underlying phonological skills that a kid who you know is that fifth grader who looks like you know what we would you know might call just our tick may have these other underlying phonological deficits. And if you look at their history, like, oh my goodness, they've had this phonologically based, you know, disorder since they were three. And mm-hmm. sometimes that I, I just- Or I, earlier. Yeah. Yes. Yes. I just yeah. love looking, thinking of it as a continuum and maybe we're yeah. moving kids along that continuum. And I think it can be confusing because as kids get older, naturally, you're probably going to be moving towards a traditional articulation approach mm-hmm. as they- you know, move along that continuum, but we've got to remember those other underlying phonological skills that may still be contributing to this deficit that they have. You know, that's a really important point that you just brought up there, Katie, with, you know, and that this is in alignment with what you said, Sherry, about how the kids, the transitory nature of the disorder and how it can change over time. And so as a result of that change, sometimes the treatment approach has to change too. So maybe earlier in a child's journey, maybe, you know, if they have a really severe what you might consider a more phonologically based mm-hmm. or just a lot of sounds in error, maybe something like multiple oppositions or cycles would be really appropriate for that child. But as right. they grow through their speech sound production abilities, and maybe once they are that fifth grader, mm-hmm. maybe now it is time to change the approach. And so mm-hmm. I think that's another really important point um, or takeaway from this is, is to know that it's okay to change the treatment approach and you yes. should be changing yes. the treatment approach yes. with the child. So not only is it good to match the approach to the child at the beginning, mm-hmm. but to kind of check in to make sure, is this still the best way to treat yeah. this child? Yeah. And I not think that's be, a, oh, sorry, go, go ahead. ahead. No, oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, and not be uh, afraid or hesitant to move mm-hmm. to something else. So I do yeah. think that, I think that really 
you know, harkens back to the importance of data collection. (laughs) And so we really do need to make data driven decisions as clinicians and how is this working? And do I think we're really at the point now where we could move on to something else Mm -hmm. instead of really hanging on to approach an an approach for too long when it's no longer kind of, uh, you know, maybe getting the most bang for our buck with the particular child. So yeah, go ahead, Katie. Sorry. And and yeah, I was just thinking right along with that, understanding like what was the approach designed to do and so an example I'm thinking about that with is like the cycles approach mm-hmm. um, you know it, it's not meant to be a long term this kid is in doing cycles for you know six years you know if you, if you look at kind of the the rationale behind the approach the whole point of cycles is to kind of perturb their little phonological system you know you're, yeah. you're throwing these new targets at them every couple you know every session and you're changing the process mm-hmm. you're working on every two sessions and it's very cyclical and by design you're not that the whole point isn't to get that kid to mastery of the production of those words you're looking for do I see a change in intelligibility? So I think, Sherry, to your point that the importance of data collection and looking like, is this kid getting more intelligible and are they, you know, producing these words with, you know, phonological processes with less frequency. And if that's the case, maybe now they're ready for a more targeted approach. Maybe they need a minimal pairs approach. And so I think that, you know, making sure that you understand kind of what was this approach designed to do Mm -hmm. and um, that in with cycles, it's not designed to get that kid hundred percent intelligible. That's not the point. And, um, and so, and then, you know, every approach has their, their thing that it's supposed to do. And yeah. I think if you understand that, that, that's, that makes it, I think as a clinician gives me confidence in knowing like, okay, where is this kid at? Mm-hmm. And what's the, the approach that's going to line up well with where this kid's at right now. You know, I think related to that, one thing that I see as something that's the most misunderstood about speech sound treatment mm-hmm. is the importance of the relationship between target selection. So choosing the sounds you're going to work on in therapy mm-hmm. and the right. treatment approach that you choose. I think that is one of the mm-hmm. most misunderstood things because I see, I've had conversations with a lot of clinicians too, and, and, and uh, so appreciate them sharing their experiences, their questions. Yes. But what I see Absolutely. happen a lot is, um, is a disconnect between those two mm-hmm. things. So maybe they choose the cycles approach Um, but they're working on non-stimulable sounds, Mm -hmm. right? Or they Mm -hmm. choose um, the traditional articulation approach and they're choosing um, complex targets, right? you know, or they're choosing multiple oppositions and they only choose one or two targets and they're developmental in nature, Mm -hmm. you know? And so the rationale between how we choose our treatment approach is just as important as how we choose the targets. And those two things go hand in hand. If you pick I agree. A, you know, if you pick mm-hmm. a treatment approach, you have to then know, so this is your, to your point, Katie, of like one, is it like, what is it designed to do? Mm-hmm. And then you have to pick your target sounds for therapy in alignment with that approach in order for the approach to work the way that it's designed to, right. you know? Right. So I think it's also helpful to, you know, if you are kind of at a point where you're not seeing progress with the child is, is to kind of look to make sure, have I chosen the right sounds for this approach or have I chosen the right approach for this child? And have I chosen the right sounds within that approach? I think that that connection, um, I'd love to see more focus on really understanding the differences between the two. Sometimes it makes a lot of sense to pick sounds that are developmentally appropriate. And I might, Absolutely. I can't put air quotes around that, I think, mm-hmm. but 
um, you know, that are developmentally appropriate for that child. But sometimes that's not the right way to choose targets. And sometimes they yeah. do need that um, complex approach. So we're choosing mm-hmm. something that's more difficult for them that like my professor Adele Michio would say, like you can, if you're choosing more complex targets, sometimes you get other sounds for free. Mm-hmm. And so yeah. it's not that you're never working on those sounds. It's that you're being really strategic about which sounds you start mm-hmm. with so that hopefully you don't ever have to target, target the other right. sounds. They just come in through the, the way you're targeting the system. So well, and to that point, Kelly, I remember chatting with the clinician. She's like, I've tried the complexity approach to target selection. And my kids just like, they, I, I can't get them like, you know, you know, we tried for five weeks to, to work on this complex target. And, you know, they, we had to abandon because it wasn't working. And then my question was, were you keeping track of the other sounds you were <laughs> hoping to get? And she was like, oh, oh, wait a minute. And so like that, you know, Love recognizing that using a complex approach to target selection that you may feel like you're not making progress unless you're looking at what are these other sounds and and that's what happens as these other sounds come along um in the kid that that's the right you know approach yes. to target selection for oh, i love that such a great point and we've we've talked a few times now about this idea of of what clinicians bring to the table for us as researchers and how we would basically be paralyzed without the, yeah. the <laughs> questions we get from clinicians yeah. and the incredible work that practicing clinicians Absolutely. are doing. Yes. Yes. Um, so with our huge respect for practicing clinicians and the fact that we have been clinicians, mm-hmm. I have two questions for you. Um, one is what do you wish practicing clinicians knew about this topic? And two related, and you can answer them in turn or one at a time. Um, when you were a clinician, mm-hmm. uh, what do you wish you knew then that you know now? Oh, yeah, that's, that's a great question. And you know, I, my, my first thought, I was thinking back to something Sherry said earlier, that, you know, I, at this point, you know, I have the time to, you know, we've spent the last three years really digging into speech sound (laughs) disorder interventions, I know a lot more now. And I think back to some of the kids that I was working with. And, and, you know, it's hard for me sometimes to not think, Ooh, I really wish I would have done this with this particular kid. Um, and, you know, and as a practicing clinician, I didn't have, like, I didn't have much time and I was, you know, just keeping my head above water. And I, I appreciated going to a presentation. I actually share, I think this is something that you've, you've talked about in presentations that we've given together. Um, and it's such great advice for me is rather than thinking about all of the kids on, my caseload, like, you know, gosh, how am I going to get the right intervention approach for all of my kids? Like, that's a very overwhelming task. But, you know, and something that we'll talk about in our talks now is thinking about, okay, think of one kid right now that you're kind of feeling like, man, I just keep feel like I'm just butting here and think about that one kid and, you know, investigate what's an approach that might work well. So I think that's one strategy is to choose one child, learn the approach for that kid. And once you've learned the approach, you don't forget the approach. And because chances are good, another kid's going to come along. You're like, wait, that, right. that kid would benefit from this as well. I think um, the, the, on the flip side of that is go and learn about an approach. You know, that's what, you know, I went to a talk on complexity. I didn't know anything about it. And um, I think that I will recommend your, or my cautionary tale is to not then see, you know, that approach is the, the, the right approach for all of your kids. But, you know, sometimes when you're learning about an approach, and this has happened for me, 
as I'm learning, I'm like, oh, and I can think of that one kid that like, oh, I want to try this with this kid. And so I think, you know, all of that to say, like, start small. Um, none of us are going to master all of these approaches at once. Um, we just, we can't do that. But like, I do think learn one approach at a time or, you know, find the kid that you have the most questions about and learn the, an approach that's going to work for that kid. And once you have that, then move to a new approach, you know, and just slowly build your toolkit. That's how I talk about it with my students. Like the more tools that you have in your toolkit, the, the you know, pretty soon, you know, it's it, not every kid looks like they need the complexity approach, turns out. <laughs> like, you know, if you have <laughs> right. more approaches in your in your tool belt, you are more equipped to to match what is the right approach for the right kid. So I don't know, that's just one thing I would think about. Sherry, what do you think? Uh, well, I was just going to mention, so when you were talking about just learn one approach for one student, you know, start small. So my doctoral mentor, Dr. Cynthia Crest, she used to always say one hard thing at a time. So she was really talking yeah. about early intervention and introducing therapy targets or kind of progression through therapy with um, you know, our young clients, but I think it also applies to us as, as clinicians yeah. too. So we don't have to take it all on all at once, but let's just focus on one hard thing at a time as we are working towards, you know, our, um, professional development too. Um, and I think for me, when I was a practicing clinician, I, I think I would, so I guess that is maybe this is still going on today. Maybe people are still kind of struggling with this, but I didn't feel like I had the awareness that I certainly have now about the diversity of evidence-based speech sound disorder treatment approaches that are available <laughs> to mm -hmm. us to use, you know, for free, many of yeah. them. Um, and so uh, I think a lot of us, you know, in our training for the profession, we take, you know, one class on speech mm -hmm. sound disorder, or if we're fortunate, right. we may have two, we might have one at the undergrad and one at the grad level. Um, even though 90% or somewhere around 90% of pediatric SLPs, you know, have students with speech sound disorder, they're staples on their caseload. Um, but there's so much to cover in those, you know, one or two courses that I think we do kind of lose some of the nuances and just pick up on the broad strokes and we learn a couple of uh, approaches that we're comfortable with. We've seen other people using and we just kind of run with those. Um, but I think you're right. I think the more tools we have available to us that we feel comfortable using, that's really gonna help us um, individualize our services more and, and really provide the most effective treatment for the individual students whom we're working with. So. So I, I think that's something I wish I knew yeah. when I was practicing is I just had a better understanding of that diversity of what's available mm -hmm. to us and what are what are all the tools I could be using. Yeah. Yeah. And I think okay. too, you mentioned like the the variability within the child. And I think that is probably what I Mm, there's a lot of things, but I think that's probably what, <laughs> what I, what I both wish that practicing clinicians knew now. And I wish I knew when I was actively practicing in the schools is just the, the individual child that changes a lot about the dynamics of the session. It can sometimes influence how much dosage you can get within the session. It can sometimes influence the, the type of words you might choose within the session. You know, I think the, the child factors and, you know, the child's language ability, the child's cognitive ability, 
kind of keeping those in mind and, and, and remembering that this is a little human in front of you and keeping that as this, the center of it. And I always kind of, I've been looking into um, this other theoretical approach recently called um, design thinking, mm-hmm. which is used broadly to help with problem solving. And what I love about it the most is that it's a human centered approach. And it's, you're always keeping the humans in question at the center of what the problem is. And I think a lot of times I hear and see, and was most definitely guilty of this as a clinician of thinking about the sound, right? So this is an R kid. This is an S kid. This is a, this kid's a lisper, right? And so we're talking about the sound before we're talking about the child. Yeah. And I think it's a real, it's a really important flip. If you're, if you find yourself in that mentality to, focus on the kid first, because there may be a a lot of things about that child that you need to address or think about in order to make progress. So if you're seeing, you know, delayed progress or kind of just hitting your head against the wall, like you mentioned, Katie, there could be a lot of other factors that are related to the child that, that you maybe need to address differently. And I think, I think that's probably what I would um, want clinicians to be thinking about. And certainly what I could have done a better job as, as a clinician. I think Um, that's such a great, great point. I think that, you know, one thing that I've seen a lot with these kids with speech sound disorders, motivation, I feel like we need to talk about motivation in these kids. And, um, and I think I I love this idea, Kelly, that you're talking about design thinking. Is that what Mm -hmm. it was called? Yes. I want to look more into that because I think, you know, is this, is that a key to, you know, these kids that, you know, don't appear to be motivated at all? for therapy. And often those kids in schools are getting dismissed for lack of motivation. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering, like, are we missing something? Are we, you know, Mm -hmm. is there something if we, and this is purely speculation at this point, I'm just, I'm really, really interested in this idea. Um, And because I've worked with those kids that have no motivation and I've, you know, I've used different strategies, you know, sometimes we just like need to step away from speech altogether for a minute and just like have a conversation. I think about this kid I was telling you about who it came out. Like, I just want to be able to say my name so a girl can understand me when I'm at a dance. Um, you know, and once I understood that buy-in from him, like then, okay. Like, you know, and you know, we had this conversation, you know, do you, do you think that I can help you, you know, Mm -hmm. be able to do this? And, you know, he was honest. He's like, I don't know. No one's been able to do it before. And, you know, that's, that's honest. And I'm thinking like that, but that's looking at who, Huge. who this kid is yes. and not just, this is a kid who doesn't say are, um, yeah. oh, I'm just so interested. Who wants to yeah. do a research study with me? I know. Me, me. It kind of made me think, Katie, I, I think you and I were looking into the complexity approach for a paper mm-hmm. we were writing and we wanted to say something about this would probably work well with kids yeah. who have a little bit more kind of resilience to yeah. constructive feedback and can sort of take that and it's not going to break them down. Yeah. <laughs> They're going to, you right. know, keep kind of struggling and fighting. Mm-hmm. So they needed to have like some grit kind of, yeah. right. and, and we, and we wanted to, to, mentioned that in some way, but it was like, we really couldn't find anything yeah, in the research to kind of support yeah. that, but we, mm-hmm. but we felt it, Yeah, <laughs> you know, as clinicians. And I do think you're right. I, I do think there's, there's a lot more to mm-hmm. this complex relationship of, you know, matching the appropriate, you know, yeah. treatment approach, target selection, you know, et cetera, to the child than just what sounds and how many, you know, are they working yeah. on? So, 
Um, so I do think there's there's definitely uh, some pieces that we could certainly fill in in terms of the research to help inform uh, clinicians as they're they're trying to do their job. You know, right. Well, let's yeah. do it. Yeah, okay. absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> well, you know, I think that's another thing for me too. When I think about my own clinical practice, maybe both something that I wish I knew and something that I'd love for clinicians to be thinking about or in giving themselves some grace for is just yeah. how hard it is to consume research. So this idea of learning about a new treatment approach, Sherry, you said kind of early on in our discussion today, like talking about repeated exposures to, uh, to co- the complexity approach and how the more Katie has talked about it with you, the more you've kind of understood it. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I really think that's an important message just in general for thinking about these new approaches, because if it doesn't feel right the first time you apply it, Mm-hmm. there's a host of reasons why that could be the case, right? It, it might right. not be the right approach for that kid, yeah. but yeah. it might just be that it's like, it's hard to do something new and different. You know, mm-hmm. it's hard to change mm-hmm. your, your ways when you're used mm-hmm. to doing one thing a certain way, it's hard to change it and it's okay. And yeah. so related to that, like when you're reading a new research article or even an old research article, um, it's hard to consume research. And yeah. so as a clinician, yeah it would take me sometimes days to get through Mm -hmm. one research article, you know, and it was through my training to become a researcher that I really learned how to be a better consumer of that research. But that's not something that I think is part of the training for clinicians and should it be, or should it not be, you know, that's maybe another podcast Mm -hmm. episode, but, Mm -hmm. um, (laughs) but it's, it's hard, it's time consuming and it's difficult. And I think giving yourself some grace through that process of learning something new because it's it's hard, it's difficult, and you're doing it for the betterment of the mm-hmm. children on your caseload, but also for the betterment of yourself. And so give yourself some grace and flexibility. If it doesn't work, keep trying. And it might not work the first time, but that doesn't mean that you've done something wrong or that it's not the right approach. It just means you're busting out of your shell and trying mm-hmm. something new. And that's a really important thing to do. Yeah. Oh, I think that's such a great point, Kelly. And, you know, this idea that, you know, gosh, you try something the first time and, you know, maybe a big swing and a miss. Um, But if you, if you believe in the evidence that's there that says that this could be a possibility, that that this could be effective, then try it again. You know, I I love that, that idea that it could be for a host of reasons that related to the child, related to you, related to your understanding of the approach and, you know, um, you know, just give it a whirl. And if it doesn't work, you know, or maybe like part of it worked and like, okay, well, next time I'm going to try and do this a little bit differently. Um, and so I think that it's, it's, it's just really important to have that perspective. I, I love that Kelly. Yeah. And that kind of gets at the resiliency and the grit of the clinician. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> right. Totally. <laughs> In terms of just keep, you know, keep trying and keep going after it. So, yeah. yeah. Well, I think with that, I am probably going to um, move us into the final questions of the See, Here Speak podcast. And in honor of the host of See, Here Speak podcast, Dr. Tiffany Hogan, I'm going to ask you the two questions that she asks all of her guests. And um, I'll tell you what they are first, and then you can kind of take turns or go in order. Um, One, the first one is, what are you working on right now that you're most excited about? And two is what is your favorite children's book? And that can be either from now or from when you were a child. Mm. Uh, yeah, okay. I what what I'm working on right now that I'm most excited about. So I mentioned in my lab that I work with kids with speech sound disorders. I have long been interested in 
this idea of why, you know, as kids are learning a new speech sound production, their ability to, you know, some kids are able to, you know, learn to self-monitor their own productions very quickly. And others, like, I feel like I'm constantly still having to tell them, is this correct? Is it incorrect? And so I've been interested for a long time in kind of how are these kids perceiving speech sounds, not only speech sounds mm -hmm. of others, but also their own productions. And I'm, I've long been interested in this kind of disconnect mm -hmm. that sometimes, you know, I, I think about the kids, you know, sitting in a therapy room and especially if you're working with more than one kid um, that, you know, maybe they're both working on the R sound and um, they can't tell when they themselves aren't doing it correctly, but they're very quick to point out when the other kid's not producing it correctly. I'm interested in this idea of perception. So I'm working on a, a study right now where we're looking at this, um, the relationship between how kids perceive others' speech versus their own speech. And I'm, I'm really interested ultimately to see how, what does this mean for intervention? Are there things that we can do to, you know, support children's ability to self-monitor their own productions? And I just... Yeah. I'm really interested in this. You know, I think it was Sherry that mentioned um, Van Riper's traditional articulation mm -hmm. approach that, you know, has this idea of this ability to discriminate. Mm -hmm. And it's not something that we really look at very often. I think for a lot of reasons, you know, we don't have a good way to assess discrimination. Yeah. Um, we don't. And, you know, I, those are things I'm working on in my lab right now to, to oh. try and create clinically useful tools that can give us some insight into how children are able to discriminate and how that might inform intervention. So that's something I'm working on right now that's that I'm quite excited about. That's awesome. Yeah. Oh, I can't yeah. wait to read it. <laughs> well, I think Me that too. perceptual <laughs> side is really important. And I think it's, it's, um, it's not as well understood, I mm -hmm. think, just in clinical yeah. application. And I, and I do think it's probably, you know, it's pretty ripe for, for some clinical application, but we really yeah. need the research to fill in. So that's awesome. That's yeah. great. Well, I can tell you, I am most excited just to get back to in-person data collection. Oh, yes. <laughs> so yeah, uh, it's been a while <laughs> for <laughs> a lot of us due to COVID-19. Um, I usually work a lot with infants and toddlers in my research. So I think it was uh, particularly challenging to pivot uh, to an yeah. online format. So as many parents and educators can now tell you, it's really hard to meaningfully engage toddlers over Zoom. Uh, so with that, I do have a project that I am finally planning to conduct uh, in-person data collection, um, but it will be in the fall. But um, I'm working on it with some colleagues in Israel, Dr. Mona Julius and Esther Adajafa, and it's called Motor Skill Learning Across Toddlers with Differing Language Skills. So for this wow. study, we are really going to kind of test, get into testing the notion that early uh, deficiencies associated with language development may go beyond the language uh, domain, and that young children with early language deficits are likely to show impaired procedural motor learning skills as well. Uh, so they've actually found this connection between um, language deficits and um, procedural motor learning skills with older um, children who are five and six years old, uh, particularly children who had uh, developmental language disorder. So we really wanna see if that connection still kind of holds with even younger children. So, um, and, and if it does, then potentially there's some shared kind of neurodevelopmental 
cause that's really kind of leading to and kind of driving those delays in uh, acquiring skills in both areas. So, so I'm really excited about it. I know it's not explicitly you know, speaking so on disorder focus, yeah. uh, but I'm really excited to get back to my roots and go back to working with some late talking toddlers again. Okay. And I'm really looking forward to it. So. Oh, that's oh, fascinating. That's awesome. That sounds yeah. awesome. Yeah. It's really cool. Um, Oh, and then my favorite, my favorite kids book. Oh my goodness. This is an impossible question. I've been thinking, I kept like thinking about this one. Um, For me, I I eventually landed on, it's actually a recent um, um, exposure for me, but it's called the wonky donkey. (gasps) No. Oh my goodness. I will, I will share a link to a YouTube video of a hilarious reading of the wonky donkey. I, I settled on that one because it's, it's you know, obviously um, got some good phonological awareness in there. Um, it's a hilarious read aloud. Um, everyone will be in stitches. It's, that, that's my current favorite book, but, but know that that was an impossible decision I to get it. commit. <laughs> so I will, I'll share the, the YouTube video to the wonky donkey reading. Awesome. Oh gosh. Well, I, I actually have like five, <laughs> but I won't go just into them all. Sherry, yeah. Just one, Sherry. <laughs> I can't, Katie. I can't. Um, but I wonder, uh, actually book that, or series of books that uh, my daughter, Lindy and I have been rereading together are the Laura Ingalls Wilder, uh, oh, Little House yeah. on the Prairie yes. book series. So I love those when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. I love that they were from the child's perspective and here she is in this huge, you know, great big expansive world and kind of growing oh, yeah. up as I was reading the books and um, she's far, Laura was far from being a perfect child. So it's very relatable. <laughs> um, and then the books too, they just, uh, they just were so descriptive and just allowed for these really vivid, you know, mental images, which we all know really helps with comprehension. So, so I loved them as a kid, not for those reasons, right? <laughs> but, but now I've come to appreciate yeah. them more, but um, but now as an adult and as a parent, it's really fun to go back and have that opportunity to reread the series with my daughter. Mm-hmm. And I have actually, I'm sharing with her my actual childhood books. Wow. So some of them are, are literally oh, falling apart. Awesome. <laughs> How fun. Um, but we're having a good time. So we read together every night. We'll lay in her bed and we each take turns reading a page mm-hmm. to each other. So, oh, so it's been really so fun special. to revisit those. So, mm-hmm. and when they were younger, we used to love the monster at the end of this book. With oh Rover yeah, that's it. Oh, I love that Street. one. Yes. Just super interactive, super engaging. Mm-hmm. And then um, the Sandra Boynton or Boynton, oh, Boynton. Yeah. So yeah. Boynton, thank you. Uh, the going to bed book, the pajama oh, time book. Great. So yes. we just love those. And they had so much that really kind of fostered like early development of those phonological awareness skills. And they were just so fun and interactive to read. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. so those are some of my faves. Yeah. Well, I'm going to add to that list, even though no one asked. Um, that <laughs> I thought it would be fun. To when talk has about. that ever stopped us? That's a great. That's a great point. That's a great point. Um, I thought it would be fun to share. You know, I, like you guys have a really hard time narrowing this down, but one yeah. that I've really been liking. I try to think about how to use books and therapy a lot. Yeah. And so this one is called Scribble Stones and it's by Diane Alber. And one of the reasons I like it is because it has a lot of consonant clusters and those tend to be really tricky to to treat and to generalize. And so I, um, I thought I would bring that one up because you know, it has a lot of 
um, three, two and three consonant clusters mm -hmm. within it. And oh, so nice. it gives a lot of opportunities to practice those within oh, a kind yeah. of a little bit more natural environment. Mm -hmm. So related to our, our thoughts today on, mm -hmm. on speech sound treatment, I thought that would be a good one to yeah. share. Absolutely. That's, I'm going to look that one up. I know. I just wrote it down. I'm <laughs> going to all, we'll, uh, we'll have the links to all of these in the, <laughs> on the website as well. And so, um, thank you both so much for spending this time Aww. with me. And Thanks I think we're all just really grateful to Tiffany yeah. for this platform mm -hmm. and this opportunity. And we're sending lots of love and light to her as she's healing and Absolutely. progressing through her treatment. And, um, thank you guys again so much. Thank you, thank you Kelly. Kelly. Thank, thank you, you, Tiffany. Tiffany. Yeah, this is great. Yeah, Bye, this guys. is really fun. Thank Bye. you. Check out www.seehearspeakpodcast.com for helpful resources associated with this podcast, including, for example, the podcast transcript, research articles, and speaker bios. You can also sign up for email alerts on the website or subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts or any other listening platform so you can be the first to hear about new episodes. Thank you for listening and good luck to you making the world a better place by helping one child at a time.